came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 14th of December. 2018. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Today, we present episode 5 in our Astro Tour series, featuring interviews I did on a two and a half thousand kilometre Astro Tour of Australia's finest eastern state radio and optical observatories. Last week, we caught up with John Sarkissian the operations scientist at the CSIRO Observatory at Parks. For today's episode, we travelled 300 kilometres down from Parks to Canberra and then up to the Mount Stromlo Observatory, where we met with Dr Brad Tucker, an amazing astronomer and prolific science communicator who's the go-to person for Australia's media when something happens up in the sky. And that's happening every day now in this golden age of radio and optical astronomy. Stay tuned. You will love this interview with Brad. And after that, the good news is we have Dr. Ian Musgrave back again with his regular What's Up Doc session, where he tells us what's up in the morning, evening and night skies for the next two weeks and what to look out for. And hopefully he'll also be giving us one of his famous tangents. And of course, we'll finish off the episode with some news. Now, I should note here that a few things have happened since we did this interview with Brad. First of all, Kepler did indeed run out of fuel and has been decommissioned and turned off. So no more new Kepler data, as Brad explains, but there's still plenty in the archives. Secondly, Brad has used some early Kepler data and some ground-based telescopes from February. Now remember, Kepler was designed to find exoplanets, but it's also turned out being very good at finding Type 1A supernova. And Brad and a team of researchers have discovered an amazing Type 1A supernova, which I'll talk about in our news at the end of the show. So right now we are at the ANU Mount Stromlo Observatory with Dr. Brad Tucker. Hello, Brad. How's it going? Very good, thanks, Brad. Today we're speaking with Brad Tucker, who's an astrophysicist and cosmologist at Mount Stromlo Observatory and ANU Research Fellow at the Australian National University. We first spoke with Brad two years ago when he explained the inverse square law, the Doppler effect, 
the Chandrasekhar mass and told us how he uses Kepler, Hubble and ground-based instruments to find type 1a supernova, light echoes and redshift to determine how the universe is expanding and not only that, the expansion is accelerating. Now, Kepler is nine years into a three and a half year mission and has just been put into sleep mode ready for what could be a final data dump next week. Will you miss Kepler, Brad, given that she's done such fine work for you in the past? What will replace Kepler? I've been involved with Kepler since 2013, 2014, so it was one of those things I never planned on using Kepler. It just so worked like that. You know, and we still have a heap of discoveries still yet to come out of Kepler. And, and so even though it's kind of now the end of the mission, there's still data and still science that's going to come on. And I think the great thing about Kepler is its legacy will far outlive its lifetime. You know, it's, I like how you said that it's nine years into a three and a half year mission because it, it is. We've yeah. gotten a lot. For a telescope that broke, it's been hugely successful, right? And that's an amazing thing. And, and so we still have lots of things that are happening. In fact, the last parts of Kepler were focused just on looking at supernova and black holes. And so we had 40 different telescopes looking and following and shadowing Kepler from the ground to do detailed studies of supernova and black holes and all sorts of stuff. But now the great thing is Kepler went for so long, its successor, Tess, yep. is already doing stuff. Like it went so well that its replacement and it did the same things at the same time. So we've already started to get ready to use Tess to look at supernova and black holes. And as we talked about when we were walking around, we were building these UV telescopes on balloons to actually hopefully shadow tests so we can see how stars blow up instantaneously in the optical like Tess does, but also in the ultraviolet because it tells us different processes what are happening. So, you know, the future is, you know, the future, as you say, is now because it went for so long that it ran into it, which is great. Fantastic. Now, I looked at a couple of papers you shared authorship on this year, and in one of them you analysed a Type 1A explosion within 22 hours, and... In another, you use Cepheid variables to work on refining the Hubble constant. Can you tell us a bit about your current research and the instruments you're using? So Kepler has been a big part of finding these supernova early. And the great thing about Kepler is by seeing the sky every 30 minutes, you can see when a supernova happens when the first minutes. And that tells us the very beginnings of how a supernova blows up. But we've also been using Hubble to do these detailed measurements of the local volume. Because ultimately, when you look at it, we can measure a speed of the universe shortly after the cosmic microwave background. We can measure a speed of the universe kind of now. And we can measure how fast the universe is growing over its history. And they're all kind of independent measurements. And they don't agree with each other. And this has been the interesting thing that people have been wanting to look at. And that's really where my focus has been on is that we can measure parts of the universe of speeds at different times, but they're not telling us the same story. And so it could be simply we've messed something up, or it could be our measurements are not as good as we think. So part of this is understanding the tools we use, so better understanding the stars that actually explode, better understanding how we use these Cepheids to measure it, and in just improving their accuracy. So there's been a lot of this work of trying to get this to work, and this is followed into the Dark Energy Survey that I'm involved with Chris Lidman, and that's using the AET at Siding Spring and the 4-meter telescope in Chile to do 
thousands of supernova really well. So we're seeing this mixture of starting to understand the physics behind the tools that we use in space, which is a great time because that's, that's what we want, right? We want to know the tools that we're using for measuring the universe. And we've realized that that's been our limitation. Yep. Let's talk about where we are right now. You've just given us a fabulous tour of the Mount Stromlo Observatory overlooking Canberra in Australia. It's got a wonderful history and also that tragedy. And the bushfires destroyed a lot of the infrastructure here, but you've done something really clever to ensure that your students at ANU have access to world-class instruments. Like you just didn't build another big telescope here in light-polluted Canberra. That's right. Tell us what you've done. This is exactly right. 80 years ago, 50 years ago, you had to build the telescopes where you were now, but things like internet and, and technology and space have allowed us to do better things, but you don't have to put it next to it. So what we realized was that, you know, the observatory was set up 50 years ago to do nighttime observing and before that even to do solar observing. But since it's changed, we used the, the 2003 fires to slightly change what we want to do. And that is that we can build big things for telescopes overseas and use them remotely. So we have a partnership with the 10-meter Keck telescopes in Hawaii. We're in partnership with the U.S. group to build the 25-meter Giant Magellan telescope. So it's literally 25 meters across. That is the size of the mirror. And so to put it into perspective, the Hubble is 2.4 meters. So you have something 100 times more collecting area than Hubble. And not just that, we're able to use technology to actually correct for how the atmosphere is blurring. So by putting these lasers to create fake stars in the sky, we can measure how the atmosphere is moving around. And then the mirrors will literally change shape. You know? So we're now at the stage where mirrors can correct themselves. So we will be able to have a telescope 10 times better image resolution than Hubble, 100 times more powerful than Hubble, and $3 billion less than Hubble. And, and, but we don't have to build it here. We're putting it in Chile. A lot of the telescopes are going in Chile because it's a great place to do astronomy. But we can access it remotely. We can control it remotely from here. And as you showed when you were talking and visiting Siding Springs, some of those things are completely robotic. I literally, one of the telescopes from Siding Spring, because we can access it anywhere, I was on a trans-Pacific flight. I was coming back from California, and I got on the satellite Wi-Fi, logged in, and did an observation on the telescope, right? That's modern technology. Unreal. And so, but it also means that we can build things elsewhere. And so the labs that we've built, called the Advanced Instrumentation Technology Center, means that we now can build our own satellites. We can build our own satellites in our own space telescopes, which is just mind-boggling to think that we're at this level now that we can build things that are in the best place of all in that space for a fraction of the cost. And so we use the fires to say, you know, this is what we've done in the past, but that's not necessarily what's going to happen in the next 50 years. What do we want to do in the next 50 years? And that is big collaborative facilities overseas, and that's putting and building our own things in space. And that's exactly what we built. And that's exactly what we're doing. It's, it's great. And you showed us that secure room where you test satellites from tiny little CubeSats up to three metres in size. Can you tell us about, you're a PhD supervisor. Yes. Can you tell us about some of these ballooning experiments that your PhD students are doing? Yeah, so one of my PhD students, Ryan, is, is in charge of this project. And what we're doing is that we realize that, so we want to look at the ultraviolet colors to see a lot of things because it tells us very energetic things, very hot things. But luckily, the ozone blocks most of the ultraviolet light. Luckily, so we don't get burned. You know, it, it's a happy thing. 
But what it means is that if we can get above the ozone, we can see ultraviolet colors. Now, historically, that was just putting things into space. But we now have access to balloons. These balloons are huge. They're two to three stories tall, but they can go in the air and stay in the air for months at a time. And they can stay in essentially the same area. So you can get through the ozone, or most of the ozone. You can see the ultraviolet colors. You can put a large telescope in there. So our telescope will be more sensitive than the Swift Space Telescope on a balloon. And then we can transmit the data in real time. And then we can land the telescope and relaunch them. And so because it's cheap, we're literally building a ring of 50 telescopes to put in a circle around the world because we can monitor the entire sky every night. Or we let the sky move and we can look at the same patch of sky every, 50, every 30 minutes. So what we will hopefully have is something that will actually shadow the test telescope in the ultraviolet colors regularly. So it's, and again, for on a balloon. And, and so this is kind of this great thing of technology is space and technology is happening so fast. We can just do things, you know, it, it's not this huge process of, oh, we want to do it. Let's look at it. No, let's just go do it. And that's what we get to do. And that's literally just one of my students' projects. Unbelievable. You've got some dedicated student telescopes here. Tell us about them. So we, we have a couple. So we have three small domes, and these were actually primarily built after the fire. So we received private donations to build these small domes. And so we use them for school groups and public nights and educational visits. So we actually get a lot of schools that come up to Mount Shermlow at night. So a lot of people come to Canberra as a student to do their kind of trip to the capital. But, you know, one of the things is everything closes at five. And there's a bunch of students who have nothing to do after hours. <laughs> but that's when astronomy is great, right? Yeah. So, you know, we get lots of teachers. And it's a good way of interacting with students, telling them what we're doing, and, you know, potentially inspiring the next generation. And, and so that led us to build a special facility with a local high school teacher here, Jeff McNamara, which is purely its own telescope just for high school students to do their own research yeah. projects. And there's nothing like it. You know, they literally, we work with them to come up with something quite interesting. They observe it. They do the data analysis. And, that, and these, are, these are kids who are 12 to 15 years old. And so we were able to build this facility through private donations and through our own money. So it's, it's always finding these ways of a little bit can go a long way. Unbelievable. Thank you so much, Dr. Brad Tucker. It's fantastic to finally meet with you. Yes. And remember, listeners, ANU's Mount Stromlo Observatory Complex is a great place for families, for astro fans, for researchers who are studying the cosmos. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks for coming. Now, here's some more good news. You've just heard our short formal interview with Brad, but he also took us on a grand tour of the Mount Stromlo Observatory and the new National Space Test Facility. He showed us the monster satellite vacuum test chamber called Wombat, the extreme heat-free satellite test chamber and the test bed that simulates the forces that satellites experience on launch. If satellites are small as CubeSats and as large as 3 metres by 3 metres pass these extreme tests, they are certified to launch into space. We kept the recorder rolling during this great tour with Brad and will publish this astonishing episode early in our 2019 season.
Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. It's great to be talking with you, Ian. We've had a fabulous year here at Astrophys with all of your What's Up Doc reports. And this is our final one for 2018. We've got a huge program lined up for 2019. And we're just about to embark on our holiday break. So I'll get in right now at the start before I ask you what's up, Doc, and wish you and your family a very happy holiday break and festive season. So back at you. Hopefully it will be a good one. Sadly, it won't replicate the holidays of 2011 where we were graced with Comet Lovejoy in the Christmas sky. But we've got a Christmas comedy anyway. Okay, Ian, well, let's begin then. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for this episode? Well, in terms of bright planets in the evening, not very much. Saturn is now very low in the twilight, and by the end of the fortnight, will have disappeared into the twilight glow and won't return until January. Mars is still visible above the western horizon. It's looking still bright. It's no longer the brightest object in the evening sky after the moon and Venus, but it's still easily recognisable. And it's, of course, at the moment, it's in a patch of sky without too much competition, so it's readily recognisable as the bright red object above the northwestern sky in the early evening. Telescopically, it's not very exciting at the moment. It's now shrunk significantly. You might be able to just pick out a solar cap, but what you will see is that Mars now has a definite gibbous shape. And that's about the only thing you'll really see, unless you've got a really super-duper telescope. So if, you know, it'll, it'll be orange, maybe you might see a faint white polar cap, but that you won't see very much else. Very good. However, that, that, that's in the evening for uh, bright objects. But we have two other interesting things coming up. At the moment, we've got the Comet 46B Baratin. That was predicted to get it somewhere between magnitude 4 and 3 when it's at its brightest. It's probably on track to get up to magnitude 4, which if the comet was a point-like object like a star, would be readily visible. It would be about as bright as the fifth star in the Southern Cross, Epsilon Crucis. But that brightness is spread out over a patch about the size of the full moon. So you, it's really hard to see with the unaided eye. I have had reports of the comet being visible with the unaided eye in dark sky sites from Australia. But again, it's a fuzzy patch smeared out. So you may need, if you, even if you're out in the dark sky site, you need to be knowing where you're looking and you need to probably use averted vision to, uh, to pick it up. But it's... Uh, you know, quite easy to pick it up in uh, binoculars if, and uh, small telescopes if you have uh, a, a good idea of where it is. Now, uh, the comet is brightening, uh, rapidly brightening. It will be closest to the sun on the 13th. From our point of view, Australia's point of view, is closest to Earth on the 15th, 16th, depending whether you're on Eastern Daylight Saving Time or not. But over the past few weeks, as this comet's been brightening, it's been going through a fairly uninteresting patch of sky, which means it's had a, a, been having a, a bit of difficulty in terms of, of picking this, uh, the comet up. You need to be a, a very good star hopper in order to pick the comet up. 
but now it's uh, coming close to some bright guide stars. But on the 13th, it's just above, uh, from the point, point of view of uh, us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's just above the head of Taurus the bull. Uh, from those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, it's just below the shin of Taurus the bull. So if you're looking from the Northern Hemisphere, if you are looking at Taurus, you've got the famous V-shape of Taurus the bull. And then if you draw a line between stars that form the V of Taurus and keep on following them down, uh, following them down is that you'll see a, a fairly brightish group uh, of two stars together, and the cult will be just around that. For Australia, flip those directions. You're following from Aldebaran, the bright red star. You follow the line of stars that form V-shape up towards those, that pair of double stars. They're quite easy to see even under suburban conditions, and under those double stars will be the comet. And so that's on the 13th, and you know, the comet will move quite a bit from day to day. Uh, it won't, as some news agencies will have us believe, zip across the sky. Uh, it is moving fast enough that if you try to take an astronomical photograph with long exposures, it'll smear a bit. But you won't be able to see it move, move visibly. It's on the 16th, it's almost directly between Aldebaran and the, uh, the Pleiades, and the next night it's from the Southern Hemisphere point of view, it's, it's uh, down a bit from the Pleiades, but still uh, very easy to see. The Pleiades are very obvious, uh, the, uh, the, the little cluster of seven sisters, and they, they fit within a binocular field of the Pleiades, so that'll look really nice both on the 16th and the 17th. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, flip it upside down. Huh. So you'll, you'll, the Northern Hemisphere people will see it coming up past the Pleiades, but still on the 16th and 17th, um, the comet is within a binocular uh, field of the Pleiades, and it will look really nice. It will stay bright until the 21st. Once you, you, know, you know where the comet is, it's easy to follow it from there on. It'll remain uh, binocular bright for some time. It's at its brightest between the 13th to the 19th, but it'll be still quite uh, obvious in binoculars. Fantastic. And, of course, there's the other thing that's happening is the Gemini's meteor shower. Yep. And uh, the, the bright... Uh, um, uh, Comet 46P at its brightest overlaps the uh, peak of the Gemini meteors. This year, the Gemini meteor peak is approximately 12.30, 14th universal time, which is uh, just before midnight uh, on the 15th uh, in Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. The moon's uh, uh, still quite high and the radiant hasn't risen very, uh, very high. The radiant, of course, being the, the position in the sky where the meteors appear to come from. So you, you, would have, you have to wait till about 2 o'clock on the morning of the 15th anyway for the moon to set and for the radiant to be high enough to get a decent show. But we should get to see a, a relatively decent show this year because the, uh, um, the, the difference between the... Uh, actual peak and the time we can see it at highest in the sky isn't very uh, big. We'll have uh, a, uh, a good uh, uh, view of the meteors. Of course, you may have seen some places saying whether there's going to be a ZHR of 120 meteors per hour, and possibly even saying that if you can see 120 meteors per hour, you can't. For most places in Australia, will be seen between 20 to 30 meteors per hour 
with people in Darwin favour with about 40 meteors per hour. So that works out to be a, about a, minute, a meteor every about two to three minutes, which isn't bad. Yeah. Isn't bad. The reason for the discrepancy, of course, is because the ZHR is the rate you would, you would see the meteors if the meteors were directly at the meteor radiant was directly at the zenith, and there's nothing in the way. Of course, in Australia, the um, the, the, um, the radiant never gets very high in the sky, so we can't see the full the full potential of the meteor shower in part because of our of the bloody atmosphere absorbing light, and in part because uh, several of the meteors will start their uh, their burn below our local horizon. So there's a number of factors that determine whether or not we can uh, we can see the, see the meteor shower, see a, a lot of meteors. But you know, um, for an early for an early morning, uh, seeing uh, um, two to three meteors every uh, every minute under dark sky conditions would be is quite nice. Under suburban conditions, you'll see fewer, but you'll still uh, see enough of them to be worthwhile to get up uh, early in the morning uh, on on the fifteenth. Uh, which happens to be a Saturday morning, so that's that's um, that's quite convenient. Uh, you, know, you can get up, watch meteors, and then go back to bed again, and not have to worry about going to work uh, unless you work on the weekends as a barista or something. Um, but as as well um, on that date, um, the comet will be the comet 46P will be quite bright and will still be above the horizon. It might be a little bit tricky to see. Um, because uh, it'll be uh, in the process of setting, but um, you'll be able to uh, follow the, me- the uh, meteors on one hand and um, and, and uh, follow the, uh, the comet on the other hand, so it'll be a great double night. And uh, if you start, stay up until um, twilight, counting meteors until the twilight appears, you'll be able to see Venus rise and, uh, and uh, have uh, brilliant Venus as your companion um, for the early part, for the late early part of the morning, so you know, that you, uh, rounding out your night, you can start off with a comet, a fair few meteors, and then have brilliant Venus coming along. So that, that's a, a bad night. You might also be able to pick up a few meteors, a few satellites. There's always something happening. Ian, did you happen to hear the wind on Mars? I heard the wind on Mars. That was fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure my uh, my companions in the train uh, were quite as enthused about me, <laughs> me playing uh, Martian wind uh, uh, on the on my phone. But yeah, I mean that's that's really good. Later on in, in the month, towards um, Christmas itself, Mercury and Jupiter turn up in the morning sky, but they're going to be lower than the horizon. But you might want to be up early on the 22nd, which is also a Saturday. It's when Jupiter and Mercury are less than a finger width apart, so that'll be something quite nice to see in the uh, in the dawn twilight. Now we won't be back until after the New Year, but if you're getting up early in the morning, then uh, you will find that uh, on January the second, uh, the uh, Boxing Day in, in uh, Australia, uh, you'll find the crescent moon and Venus very close together. And then January the third, the crescent moon and Jupiter are close. And January the fourth, the crescent moon is between Jupiter and Mercury. So that will be something very nice to look forward to uh, in the new year. And for astrophotographers, they'll get some great shots of that one for us. 
Indeed, indeed. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been a fabulous year and great to speak with you again. And thank you for our final episode for 2018. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Here is the Astrophys News for Friday the 14th of December. Dr Brad Tucker and team find a unique Type 1A supernova. Brad, the star of this episode, excuse the pun, is one of the lead researchers who used the Kepler Space Telescope in coordination with 40 ground-based telescopes to witness the first moments of a supernova exploding and dying in unprecedented detail. Using Kepler to look back in time 170 million years, along with an array of high-powered telescopes, detected the light emanating from the supernova SN 2018-OH. Kepler, in its final days before running out of fuel and being retired, observed the minute changes in brightness of the star's explosion from its very beginnings, while the ground-based telescopes detected changes in colour and the atomic makeup of this dying star. Next, the Australian home of our National Space Agency has been announced. It's Adelaide in South Australia, which is also home to the Woomera Rocket Range. At its peak, Woomera had an area of 270,000 square kilometres, that's 100,000 square miles, and Australia's first satellite, Resat, was launched from Woomera in 1967. A couple of things to note with some embarrassment. 50 years after our first launch into space, we have allowed our capacity to evaporate and our space agency has a $26 million government investment over three years. To put that in perspective, our government has committed $50 million to a memorial to Captain Cook, the Englishman who first interacted with our indigenous population. On top of that, current legislation prevents any launch from Australian soil from going beyond 100 kilometres into space. So yeah, we have a space agency, but... Next, the Osiris-Rex spacecraft aimed three of its science instruments towards asteroid Bennu and began making the mission's first observation of the asteroid and found water. Life as we know it loves water. So watch Bennu and Osiris-Rex. There could be a feast in store. Next, China's Chang'e 4 has been launched and it will be landing on the far side of the moon. Congratulations. Next, Virgin Galactic had a successful space flight, paving the way for space tourism. Next, weeks after the Parker Solar Probe made its closest ever approach to a star, our sun, the science data from the first solar encounter is just making its way into the hands of emissions scientists. Next, 
Japan's space agency, JAXA, their Minerva 2 rovers have sent back 200 photos in the search for a suitable landing site on asteroid Ryugu. The rovers were dropped by the unmanned Hayabusa 2 spacecraft onto Ryugu, about 280 million kilometres, that's 170 million miles, from Earth. That happened in September, and the aim is to collect data and surface information prior to landing, collecting samples, and returning back to Earth with them. This will give us an opportunity to look at the primordial universe. Next, NASA's InSight lander is sending home some great selfies as it prepares to drill five metres down into Mars to check its pulse with seismographic readings. Next, do a simple search on the internet for the sound of Martian winds. Thanks to InSight, it's the first time we've eavesdropped on the breath of another planet's winds. It's pretty eerie. Go and have a listen. And finally, our Parkes telescope, the DISH, and the NASA CSIRO Deep Space Network at Tidbinbilla have confirmed that Voyager 2 has sailed beyond the heliosphere, not quite interstellar space, but close enough for many, to celebrate another milestone in our quest to understand our universe. Finally, a special thank you to Brad and the other 25 astrophysicists, researchers and astrophotographers, including Dr Ian Musgrave, who gave their time, knowledge and experience so generously this year to bring you the Astrophys podcasts. Till then, enjoy the holiday break and have a very happy and safe festive season. So that's Astrophys for this year. See you early next year. Radio Wave.